What is the gospel? If someone asked you, what is the gospel, what would you say to them? If they were lucky enough to have the author and pastor Timothy Keller standing nearby, here's what he would say. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The word gospel simply means good news. It's a shorthand way of saying the good news about Jesus Christ, or more specifically, it is the good news about God's love on display through what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But here's what the gospel is not. The gospel is not the basics of the Christian faith that we get down and then tuck away in our back pocket. The gospel is not something we comprehend so that we can then move on to the more advanced doctrines of the faith. Instead, the gospel is the beginning and the middle and the end of the Christian faith. And all theology and all doctrine only serves to illuminate and explicate the gospel. So over the next five weeks, we're going to work very slowly through the second chapter of Ephesians. And each sermon, we're going to meditate on the gospel from a different angle. And in fact, through the first four sermons, we will only get through 10 verses. Very slow. And my hope is not just to increase our knowledge of the gospel or increase our awareness of all that God has done for us, but I want to see our awe over the gospel increase. I don't want us to just know the gospel or be able to recite the gospel. I want us to be gripped and transformed and delighted with the gospel. And this is no small feat. And I think this is why Paul prays immediately before this chapter begins. If you flip back to chapter 1 in verses 17 and 18, this is what Paul prays. May God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? To know, to really know the unsearchable riches of the gospel, we must pray. And so I want to invite you to make Ephesians 1, 17 through 18, your daily prayer over the next five weeks. To memorize this prayer, to pray this prayer, to ask that God would give you this spirit of understanding to enlighten you so that you can dwell in the gospel appropriately. And if you've never done this, I also want to invite you to memorize Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So that together as a community, we are journeying more deeply and meditating richly upon the gospel so that our awe might increase. As we begin our series today, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5, but primarily on verses 1 through 3. And here's the angle we're going to take. The gospel is good news about what we have been saved from. The gospel is good news about what we've been saved from. And we're going to look at that in three points. The diagnosis, our resistance, and the good news. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, everything will be on the screen behind me. uh, Or you can take one of our gray Bibles home with you. We would love for you to have that. Uh, But you can follow along in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's begin with the diagnosis. And as I work through these first three verses, I know they raise a lot of questions and objections. And I want to ask that we put those on hold until the next point. I want to look at the diagnosis matter-of-factly at first. Is that okay? Well, too bad if not. So imagine you're in the doctor's office and you're sitting on that weird, crinkly paper. And if your doctor's like mine, the wall is plastered in less than motivational quotes. And then your physician walks in and it's Paul. And he has that somber look on his face that it's bad news, but it's worse than terminal. Paul, your physician says, you're dead. Now you might respond, what? I don't feel very dead. I feel really quite actually very much alive. How are we supposed to make sense of what Paul says here? The apostle writes, you were dead. But right now, all of us feel really quite actually very much alive. Everyone in this room, to the best of my knowledge, from what I tell, unless Weekend at Birdies is happening right now, is alive and breathing and well. And that is a sign that Sunday has gone very well so far. <laughs> but Paul says, you were dead. Now, he's talking about something in the past. You were dead, implying you are now alive. Originally, Paul wrote this letter to an ancient church in Ephesus. He came through and he preached the good news and people there responded. They encountered the grace of Jesus Christ. They came out of death to life. They knew the power of God's spirit. But Paul is saying, I want you to remember what your life was like before that prior to hearing this good news preached, prior to responding to it, Paul writes, you were dead. But in what sense? Paul doesn't mean everyone in Ephesus had been literally dead and then resuscitated, but clearly the sort of experience Paul thinks is possible for people when they encounter Jesus is so dramatic that it can be employed with the metaphor from death to life. It is nothing less than that, according to Paul. It's that dramatic. So in what sense were we dead? And in what sense are some of us still dead? Paul is a Jew, and his imagination is deeply shaped and formed and developed by the Hebraic scriptures. And in this passage, there are loud echoes that begin all the way back in Genesis. God created the world and it was? It was good. It was good. It was good, good, good. And then God created humanity and it was very good. The story of the world begins with this crescendoing goodness. That's where it begins. And if you're familiar with the Genesis story, you know it starts with this big picture about how God created everything out of nothing. But then the story zooms into a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it speaks of Adam and Eve. And there in the Eden, there to Adam and Eve, God gives a command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we know how this story plays out. Satan appears in the form of a servant and he tempts uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. He casts suspicion upon God's intentions. He sows seeds of doubt about God's goodness. He essentially whispered in their ears, God is holding back on you. God doesn't really have your best intentions at heart. And they were duped. And they took and they ate of the fruit and they saw that it tasted good. But on the day that they ate the fruit, they didn't die. They continued to live and breathe and appeared to be really quite actually very much alive. So what happened? Was this an editorial mistake by the author of Genesis? God says, you're going to die on the day you eat of the fruit. They eat the fruit and on the day they ate of the fruit, they didn't die? No. This discrepancy is there to draw us in and to get us asking a question, in what sense did they die? And this has drawn the attention of rabbis and theologians and scholars throughout the centuries. In what sense did Adam and Eve, in fact, die on that day? There was a spiritual death that immediately took place. They became self-aware and ashamed. And the reaction was to hide themselves from God's presence. They felt alienated from God, unworthy to be in his presence. And as a result of disobedience, they were sent out to Eden and they were denied fruit from the tree of life. And they were separated from God's presence. And this spiritual death in turn began to manifest itself as physical death. And in due time, they did die. But the fact that God did not allow them to physically die on the spot is a profound sign of his goodness and grace. It was a sign of hope that God does not intend to let death have the final say, even if it is the necessary consequence of rejecting him, the author of life. So returning to Ephesians. When Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, this scene from Eden is what he has in mind. He's referring to this original sin and spiritual death, which has since contaminated all of humanity. And Paul stresses just how badly we've been impaired by sin, that we are now by nature children of wrath. The diagnosis is death. And the cause of death is sin and transgression. But Paul wants us to take a closer look still. As our physician, Paul identifies two culprits in our downfall, our environment and our inner inclinations. First, Paul looks at the environment in which we lived. He says, you used to follow the course of the world. In other words, you chased after the trends and patterns and movements and thoughts of culture. You were enamored with fitting into culture and following what culture told you to be and to do instead of being well acquainted with the ways of God and following God and walking in his ways. And whether you realize it or not, by doing so, you are actually following the prince of the power of the air which is another name for the serpent of old, another name for Satan. Which means culture is never neutral. Culture is never neutral. 
And this physical world is not the only reality that influences our lives. And while our modern minds are going to try to quash this insight, we're going to try to deny that spiritual forces, let alone evil spiritual forces, are impacting our day-to-day lives, Paul acknowledges them and then exposes them. And without God's intervention, we live in an environment that is shaping us day after day to reject God and is leading us toward death. That's the impact of our environment. Second, Paul examines our inner inclinations. We lived for the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and mind. And even if we want to reject the notion that we've somehow unwittingly been following Satan, we can't deny this, that we have followed our own ways, wants, and desires rather than walking in the ways of God. This is the mantra of our culture, to thine own self be true. The only law that matters is that you can do whatever you want with your life so long as you're not hurting anybody else. But that is a long way off from honoring God with your entire life and seeking to give him glory. So, as a result of our environment, as a result of our inner inclinations, as a result of our sins and transgressions, rather than being sons and daughters of obedience, Paul says we've become sons and daughters of disobedience. Rather than be children of God, we have become, by nature, children of wrath. What happened in Eden has repeated itself in each and every single one of our lives and has caused a fundamental relational shift between us and God. That's the diagnosis. And we don't like it. So let's look at our second point, our resistance. If Paul is our physician, we're the patient who has spent way too much time on WebMD. We're the patient who undermines the doctor's training, expertise, and authority because we think we know better. But it's not hard to resist what Paul's saying here, is it? Because it offends, it shocks. We want to argue against it. I know there's parts of me that in preparing this text, I want to soften it for you. I want to make it more appealing to your ears. I want to make it more easy to digest. And in part, that's because our cultural moment has conditioned us to believe that humanity is fundamentally good. You are a good person. And in our culture, that's more than a moral assessment. It is an identity. You are a good person. It's who you are in your core. And because we've been so embedded in an environment like this, it's hard to agree with Paul here. Surely we're not this bad. Maybe Paul isn't talking about us. Maybe he's talking about the worst of the worst, or maybe he's talking about somebody else, but certainly not us. The late pastor and theologian John Stott wrote this of this passage. The apostle's description is not that of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society, or even of the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day. It is the biblical diagnosis of fallen humans in fallen society everywhere. Our environment, our culture tells us we're good, but that's only part of the story. But the bigger problem is we actually have no right to assess whether we are good or not. In Luke's gospel, a ruler approaches Jesus and says, 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow his lead, then we have to follow him in this declaration. No one is good but God alone. But our culture tells us, and we like to tell ourselves, you are good. And I think part of the reason this is so convincing, so compelling, is that it's partly true. Originally, humanity was very good. That's the declaration of Genesis. But that's not the whole story. And if we settle for only part of the story, we're going to end up denying the seriousness and the weightiness of our sin. If we cut out the bad news of the story, we are guaranteeing that our deepest problem, our deepest need, will go forever unaddressed. We will remain dead in our sins. And according to Paul, that's precisely what our environment wants for us and precisely what our environment does to us. So one of the ways we poke holes through our resistance to Paul here, one of the ways we poke holes through this powerful cultural narrative that says you are a good person is through testimony. It's through sinners speaking about their sinfulness, not to glorify their sin, but to expose sin and to give permission for you to identify your own sin. When I was 18, well before I encountered Jesus, maybe underline that, well before I encountered Jesus, I had a steady girlfriend, believe it or not. And one day, she and I got in a big fight over a minor thing. That's what happens, right? Fights over minor things. And the fight was over what movie to see. It was 1999, and I wanted to see Fight Club for the third time, and she didn't. And I got so angry, I stormed off. I just left. And I went to a party, had a few drinks, was having fun, I met another girl, chatted her up, and ended up going home with this girl and cheating on my girlfriend. And as I went home, the guilt began to sink in. I couldn't believe what I was capable of. I couldn't believe what I had done. And I was sitting outside of my parents' house where I lived at the time, and I was trying to figure out, what do I do? Suddenly, a scene from Fight Club flashed through my mind. You know that part where Edward Norton decides to beat himself up in his boss's office, and he accuses his boss of doing it, and then he gets a lifetime severance? Well, that scene flashed through my mind, and so it seemed like a good way out, and I did the only logical thing. I punched myself in the face several times, went inside to my parents' house, told them I had been assaulted. They took me to the hospital where I was assessed and then taken home. And the next day, I told my girlfriend what had happened, and everything was forgotten, everything was forgiven, and I never had to come clean whatsoever. You might think I'm lying or embellishing, but that is exactly what happened. <laughs> If you had asked me at the time, are you a good person? I would have looked you right in the eyes and said, absolutely, I am a good person. And I would have believed it. I would have meant it. I wasn't unaware that I had committed wrongs. I wasn't unaware that I had lied and cheated and deceived. But they were just mistakes, nothing more. Fundamentally, I was a good person. But all the while I was being deceived, I was being lied to and cheated by sin. As the prophet Isaiah says, sin makes us call what is evil good and what is good evil. Because sin prefers to remain hidden rather than exposed. It prefers to deceive us into thinking we are not sinners because sin is death at work in us. 
And if it can remain hidden, it does the trick because we will die. As humans, we're prone to much more than just mistakes and a little bit of brokenness. We sin and we transgress not just against each other, but against the creator of the universe. And it's weighty and it's serious and it has significant consequence. But maybe you were never as bad as me. It's possible, in fact, quite probable. But that's the other problem. Our sense of goodness becomes comparative. At least I'm not a liar. At least I'm not a cheat. At least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not Alistair. And perhaps you look at your life or the lives of those around you and you see goodness. People doing incredibly good and beautiful things for the world around them. And you should expect to see this. We were made for this, even though we've fallen, even though the image of God in which we were made has been so deeply marred, goodness and beauty and light still shines through the cracks. You should not be surprised to see humanity doing good things. That's what we were made for. But God is not looking for our goodness. And he's not looking for how good you are compared to others. He's looking for us. He's looking for us. In the garden, the first thing God said to Adam and Eve after the disobedience was not, what have you done? God said, where are you? They weren't playing some cosmic game of hide and seek. God knew exactly where they were, but rather than expose them, he invites them. He invites them into his presence, even though they know they don't deserve it. Once again, I want to point out that Paul here in Ephesians, is using relational terms. We became sons and daughters of disobedience. We became children of wrath when we were meant to be sons and daughters and children of God. There was a relational shift caused by sin, and it was significant, and it was serious. So even if you seek to be a moral person, even if you show some semblance of good, the ultimate problem is not your morality, but your relationship with God. No matter how relatively good or bad you've been, God wants you to acknowledge the seriousness of rejecting him or walking away from him or denying him or hiding from him or refusing to believe in him. Paul makes it clear that the weightiness of the relational rupture between us and God trumps any good we could ever possibly do by our own efforts alone. Because the end game is that we are dead. Now, I've dwelt on this bad news for so long and belabored the point because it's foundational to the gospel. Without clarity here, the rest of the gospel gets muddied. If you skip the bad news, or you gloss it over, or you minimize it, or you undermine it, or you compromise its weight, you'll also reduce the goodness of the gospel. And worse, the gospel won't appear necessary or won't make sense at all. But at the same time, if you stop here, if you stop at sin, if you stop at the bad news, you'll miss the gospel too. Because the story is not just bad news. The story is about how God is restoring goodness to an originally good creation. So having considered the diagnosis and our resistance, let's look at the good news. Pick Ephesians back up and let's read verses 4 through 5. Paul writes, But God... 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, perhaps two of the best words we could hear at this point. If Paul stopped after verse 3, we would be headlong into a pit of hopeless despair. But God, the bad news is not the end of the story. The news pivots with these words. But God, being rich in mercy, but God, with the great love with which he loved us, but God made us alive. God has a love for us so great that it could not be diminished, Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God's love for us did not bat an eye even when we were dead in sin and became by nature children of wrath. When we understand the depths of our fall, and the weightiness of our sin, it actually serves to amplify the goodness and the magnitude of God's love because we could not outfall or outsin God's love for us. We could not exhaust its height or its breadth or its depth. So how do we know God loves us? We were dead and he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Made alive is actually the controlling Verb of verse 4 and 5. That's the main thing Paul wants us to latch onto. You were dead and God made you alive. Dead people can't make themselves alive. I don't know if you knew that. If you died on earth and you were lucky enough to be resuscitated, you didn't resuscitate yourself. You were dead. There was nothing you could do about it. There was nothing you could do to make yourself alive. You depended on the intervention and acts of someone else to perform CPR or shock you back to life. And the principle holds up in spiritual realities. Dead people cannot make themselves alive. But God has made us alive. We were dead. We couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't resuscitate ourselves we weren't just kind of dead and holding on. We were dead. But God took the initiative. But God acted. But God graciously saved us and gave us his life while we had no life in ourselves. God sent his son to die for us. And so through his death, he died the death we should have died. But through faith in him, we get to share in his very life. Where we were dead, he now lives in us. God made us alive, Paul writes, together with Christ, which means we no longer live by our own lives, but by his life. The sort of transformation then and the sort of change that is possible in the Christian life is absolutely astounding and remarkable. Before, you may have thought you were really quite actually very much alive. But if you've encountered Christ, you come to see you were living but in the shadow of life, and more accurately, you were living in the shadow of death. I am not the person I was when I was dead. I'm not plagued by the same sins and failures. I'm a long way from perfect. I'm a work in progress, but I have changed. 
I don't tell stories about my accomplishments and how I'm a hero because that's not helpful. I tell stories of my foibles and my sins and my mistakes and tripping up and falling way short of the bar time and time again on Sundays to give permission to us to take a breath and be honest about our past or to be honest about our present, to take off the masks and admit all is not well. But I don't want you to be mistaken. I haven't stayed there. That's not who I am anymore. I've been forgiven and redeemed and a new life is at work in me and it makes all the difference. Am I perfect? No, I'm a long way off. I'm a work in progress, but Christ is alive in me just as Christ is alive in you. And you know he brings life out of death. There might be areas of your life where you still want to see him show up, but if you examine your life, you know there are areas where he has breathed new life into a place where there was only a desert. As we finish up, I just want to acknowledge two dangers. The first danger is dwelling on sin too long in an unhelpful way. I'm worried for some of us who hear a message on sin and all it does is stir up guilt and shame and that's where you stay and that's what you take home. Rather than leave comforted by grace, you leave with a sense of how bad you are and doubt whether God could really love you and that's not what I want for you and that's not what I want for anybody. Do not forget these Simple and profound words, but God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you bring into this room, no matter how guilty you feel, how full of shame you may feel, no matter how afraid you might be of being seen, but God. He never ceased to love you, even at your worst. And he has demonstrated his love for you, dying for you, not at your best, but at your worst, and reconciling you to himself because he loves you. But the second danger is never dwelling on sin long enough so as to be convicted. I'm worried for those of us who gloss over our sin and never dwell on it long enough so as to have our consciences afflicted. And I fear that might actually be the majority of us. And so we have to take seriously the warning Jesus issued to Simon the Pharisee in Luke's gospel, Luke 7.47. Those who are forgiven little, love little. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Our worship, our awe, our joy, our love for God corresponds to how much we realize we've been forgiven. If we're forgiven much, we will love much. If we don't see our need for forgiveness, if we don't see the gravity of our previous state, if we don't see how sin made us dead, worthy of wrath, judgment, and eternal separation from God, we will love little. Only as we understand things as they are will we ever praise God as we ought. A lack of wonder, a lack of awe, a lack of worship is always due to a lack of love of God. And a lack of love of God is often because we diminish the depravity of sin and therefore the profundity of salvation. If you think you only need a little bit of forgiveness, just an IV to top up your goodness, it shouldn't surprise you that your heart is aloof and often cold to God. And it shouldn't surprise you if you don't really care if anyone else comes to know the saving power of Jesus.
Because the gospel will not sound like good news or make sense until we come to terms with verses one through three here. Otherwise, why did Jesus need to die at all? Why was it necessary? Why was it the only way to God? It doesn't make sense if our condition was just not that bad. And why should we have our hearts burdened for those who are yet to know him? Let me summarize it all this way. When God brings you out of death to life, you begin a journey of growing awareness. When you encounter Christ, over time, you're going to grow in your knowledge of who God is. And as a result, your awareness of God's majesty and holiness and goodness and beauty is going to increase. And at the same time, as you see who God is, you're going to have a better sense of how far you have fallen short. Over time, you're going to see just how deeply flawed and broken you are. There's going to be this growing awareness of who God is and who you are in light of God. But the way that one or the other of these things doesn't cripple us or break us or leave us in shame or guilt is by fixing our hearts upon the gospel again and again. To have a growing awareness of how the cross was always sufficient for this gap. You may have begun with a small understanding and the gap increases and you worry if God could still love you. Yes, he loves you because the cross was always sufficient. So you fix your eyes upon who God is and who you are, but you also fix your eyes on what Jesus has done for you and you will cultivate an awe of grace and it will change your life. Because as Jesus said, those who are forgiven much love much. 